Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Some of you may recognise me as the new voice of GRIP's weekly roundup of news. It's my newest claim to fame, Michael. You're a weekly roundup, are you? Wow. I'm, yes, I'm a weekly roundup. Do you do a funny bit at the end? No, but I've been cheating continuously and only picking my favourite stories to include. Ha! That's what I say it's led by the analytics, but to be honest, no one is going to check that, so I just do what I want. That's what you call power, Gary. Real power. I like to start with corruption, and therefore you can't go corrupt with power. True. True. You know, start as you mean to go on, and really then everyone knows where you are. You know, I think we've always been upfront about that, Gary. Isn't that yeah, we're, we are for sale? We're in fact, we're for rent. We're for long-term lease. We're not proud. If anybody's out there that wants to suborn or corrupt us, please get in contact. No, I mean, I openly say that Charles Hawhey, I think, was one of Ireland's finest leaders, and that Nixon was one of the best American ones. So really, at that point, it's whoever's fault gives me power. Mm-hmm. Although, actually, Nixon, very good on Russia. Very good on Russia, very good on China. Do you, have you ever seen the letters that Nixon sent to the first George Bush? Uh, asking him not to neglect Russia and that America should step in to ensure that Russia, now that the, the Soviets had, uh, Soviet Union had fallen, would progress into something that could be an ally and uh, share in Western prosperity. I have seen some, I've seen quotes from them. I've never read the letters in their entirety, you know. They're interesting. It, weirdly enough, for all that Nixon is remembered as, if you actually go back and, and read like some of his speeches and some of his policy platforms, I think it's pretty clear that Nixon was, if not the smartest US president, way up there. Well, on the you know those things, I don't know quite how they do. You know when they do these retrospective, guess the IQ of the president thing. Nixon is one of those ones that tends to score very. I know that certainly he's he, he was had a, an estimated IQ which was quite a bit above John F. Kennedy's. Then again, if we remember John, after all the the hoo ha about Bush too, discovered the Bush. This is based on the Harvard transcripts. The Bush had a higher IQ than Kerry, which the New York Times found hard to believe. Mm. Then again, Nixon got destroyed by his own personal issues, largely. So yes, it's probably a lesson in there somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere. Then again, John F. Kennedy got his head shut off in Dallas. So you know, swings and roundabouts. Well, one is control your personal issues, and one is perhaps put a roof on your car. It's always a good one. So I suppose we must start this episode by uh, a small note uh, about the death of someone near and dear to the EBI. Uh, Richard Miller, one of the founders of the EBI, one of the most important people in its uh, creation and some of the early work that was done, is uh, he died recently. Yeah, Richard uh, passed away on Monday uh, at the age of 71, far too uh, early. In, in circumstances, in a, in a sense, perhaps uh, a late victim to COVID amongst other illnesses. Richard was, he, along with Anthony Fisher, Richard had decided that back uh, when he came back over to Ireland, his family had moved here uh, in the post-war period. There were a number of families who came over to escape Attlee's new tax regime and, and Richard's uh, parents were one of those and they came over in the late 40s, early 50s and settled. Uh, I think they bought a large farm somewhere in the borders of Kilkenny to Brary. He hadn't, he didn't, unlike his, his brother, uh, Robert, who's also a friend of ours, uh, Robert studied in Trinity. Richard went to Duke University where he did a, an undergraduate degree and a master's in history. And when I first met him, he was still in the process of trying to finish his doctorate. He was very interested, which fascinated me as a young man in the conspiracy theory of history. Which he didn't agree with, by the way. He was, uh, he introduced me the first time I was formally introduced into what would be broadly described as the fuck up theory of history. In other words, never ascribe to malign, malign planning what can be otherwise ascribed to stupidity and incompetence. Anyway, Richard, uh, a fan of the new market economic, economics, Hayek and all those boys. Uh, with the help, the help of Anthony Fisher, who was the great sponsor of think tanks, free market think tanks, he set up the IEA in London and the Atlas, was it the Atlas, Gary? The Atlas Foundation, one of the great foundations of the United States. And the, I suppose the claim to fame, one, well, one of the claims to fame he had at the, the, the Edmund Brook Institute, which myself and Gary are involved with, had, was that the name came from the great uh, Nobel laureate Hayek himself. When they were struggling for a name, he said, well, you're Irish. Edmund Burke surely seems like a, an obvious choice. Uh, set up in the late 80s and was very active all through the 90s. One of the very, very few voices advocating for an organized, coherent free market approach not just to economics but to social policy and attempting to, to broaden the shall we say the access uh, across the board not just to specialist economists but to journalists and any sort of any any adult or, or literate person who was interested in the dismal science 
I have had so many conversations over the years uh, with Richard about so many different things. He was a man of great variety. Uh, in England, he might have described Gary as an eccentric. We don't have eccentrics in Ireland, I like to believe. We have merely people that we describe as being themselves. And Richard was very definitely himself. The thing, I was talking to somebody about this recently, all the various things we talked he, there was one axiom of his, which has lived with me ever since that. He's one of the truest things I know about life in Ireland. He, he said as a historian, he came to understand very quickly that in Ireland, if you start talking history, people assume you're talking politics. And if you start talking politics, inevitably, everybody will end up talking history. And I have to say, 30 years after he told me that, it's, it is true to this day. And I think it's something that we could all do remember. Anyway, um, He's a man that deserves uh, some memory. We are in the process, uh, finally, of finishing up now, of transfer of transferring an archive of a lot of his written materials, his essays and musings on a whole variety of subjects to the website of the Edinburgh Institute. So uh, hopefully within a week or so, anybody who's interested in having a look at those, uh, I would encourage you to get onto the website and have a look at the archive where you'll be able to see some of the things. Hopefully that's not taking time away from your attempts to set up our drinking club. <laughs> no, it's not. The drinking club, the drinking club goes on. It is incredibly difficult to find a lawyer who is willing to give me a, any kind. The closest I have got, everybody will come to a certain point and say, well, yeah, I think the cost, the exercise will, the customs will, will try and stop you. Every person so has, has come, has had an opinion one way or the other, and they all have said at the end of it, pause, hmm, I see what you mean, but I still think the customs will try and stop you. However, we have set up a, an appointment at the end of the month with um, a super duper high powered European type lawyer who is an academic from uh, the UK who's going to come and talk to us about it. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping, Gary, we may finally get some kind of definitive answer. I suppose what I we could actually do is just ask customs, but I don't want to because I want it to be a lovely surprise for them. Many people over the years have asked what it is exactly the EBI does. We lurk mostly. Yes, we lurk in the shadows. We lurk and have uh, private meals and parties and things like that. The sort of thing that you're not invited <laughs> to. We're hoping to do in the future is to lurk in shadows and import cheap, sparkling wine for the masses. I signed off on this program purely because I thought it was funny that a shadowy think tank would also try and sell you cheap wine. So, moving on from the uh, the tragic death of... Tragic? Sad, sad death of our friend, our friend and founder. And actually kind of tying into my point about Nixon. Uh, Michael, being clearly one of the smartest people to have ever been involved as an actual politician in American politics. Um, and you know, when you, you can kind of tell when you read through the speeches of politicians, kind of roughly how intelligent they are, even if it's not something that they themselves wrote. You just get a sense of them over time. Although occasionally some people can surprise you, but it gives you a kind of general baseline. It occurs to me now, we're talking about Nixon's letters to, uh, to Bush, it's very hard not to constant to think these days of the the comments of the, the of Mitt Romney about the threat that Russia uh, posed to the to the Western uh, liberal world order and the derisive laughter that this observation was met by the very brilliant President Obama two times ter- two times president and the various media outlets that were so in love with them. I mean, Michael, being brilliant doesn't mean you're correct. Hmm. Twitter proves that every day. Also, being wrong doesn't necessarily mean you're brilliant either. So it's possible that Obama was both wrong and not brilliant. But there you go. Occasionally, you, you, you'll you hear brilliant things in Parliament. Most of the time, you hear things which are just meaningless. Kind of, They're designed not to offend. They're pre-written speeches. They don't really say anything. We don't have a very strong parliamentary tradition of fine speech. We have a terrible tradition for a, a nation of funny, odd people. It's, I mean, if you go back to the collection of, of really good stuff said by people in Parliament in the 19th century, the House of Commons, lots of stuff was said by Irish MPs, whether it was Parnell or O'Connell or the Duke of Wellington or who the hell ever. But the doll has a dismal record of interesting things. No, no. I mean, usually it manages to remain above the level of abysmal, and it's mostly just deeply disinteresting. However, I did recently hear one of the most nonsensical, meaningless, offensive 
to the intelligence of the listener things that has been said in a long time in the doll. And it came, of because of course it did, from Simon Coveney. Simon Coveney decided he was going to try and define what neutrality meant. And Michael, someone may need to get this man a dictionary. And actually looking at the level of his response to it, someone to read the dictionary to him. So this is Simon Coveney's... Um, idea of neutrality. And he also goes into what neutrality isn't. Neutrality, uh, he says he was re- he was talking um, in response to John Brady, the Sinn Féin TD, who very correctly said that neutrality is a position which required commitment and investment, which is absolutely true. He said, Deputy Brady has just said that neutrality means being against all countries and against their militaries, equating the UK, the US and Russia as if they were all in the same space. That is not neutrality to me, just to be clear. Okay, so that's what he thinks neutrality isn't, Michael. But this is what he thinks neutrality is. Neutrality and military non-alignment to me mean that Ireland decides when and where we intervene, who we partner with, and what side we take on debates and in conflicts and so on. Now, you might note, Michael, that the point where you are on an ad hoc basis deciding where you will intervene militarily, you're not neutral. Some might even say that that's just a basic description of a sovereign country. Yeah, I mean, you're Turkey, for example, and in the First World War, you decide you're going to be an Axis power. In the Second World War, you decide you're going to be neutral. Uh, or you're Italy, and in the First World War, you're going to be an ally. In the Second World War, you're going to be an Axis power. But then sometime in 1943, you're going to go from being an Axis power to being neutral, and then you're going to be an ally again. So it's just, it, I don't I don't see what neutrality has got to, it's just, that's time. It's that's just saying sometimes we're going to be one thing and other times we're going to be something else. We're not going to be... I don't know, does he mean like... You know, Portugal has been an ally of the United Kingdoms or England since 1350 or something. Famously the oldest ally. Maybe that's what he thinks that neutrality is. It's not being Portugal. In other words, Portugal has decided, okay, we're going to be pro-England and that's it. That's our policy. We don't care what the hell happens from now on. It's just easier this way. That way we don't have to think about anything. We don't have to worry. We don't have to look up anything. Somebody says, whose side are you on? We're on England's side. Maybe that's what he thinks. It's it's a very odd notion of neutrality. In politics and in foreign affairs, neutrality has a strict definitional meaning. And it is. It's it's perfectly legitimate policy. I'm not saying it's the right policy. I think you can very realistically and very legitimately say it's not a policy Ireland should hold itself to. And there's lots of stuff like the triple lock, which is, I would say, questionable at best. But it's a thing. It's it has a meaning, and its meaning is not, well, we'll do what we want and get involved in any war that we want. That's not it, and it's never been it. And I would take this point just to remind people that Simon Coveney is both the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Minister for Defence. Okay, Gary, what, what is neutrality? So, neutrality, at its base, is a policy of non-intervention, mm-hmm. effectively, about the long and the short of it. It is non-intervention in conflicts around the world and with regional. Now, this is where it gets a bit complicated for Ireland, because there is a strong argument since we joined the EU, neutrality has become impossible. But usually it would also be seen as a non-alignment with uh, regional power blocks. Yeah. So the Swiss, for instance, would generally be seen as, yes, that is a neutral country. And it's also a country that places a high emphasis on its own ability to sustain and defend itself. And the the Swiss uh, have for a very, very long time taken the neutrality thing very seriously. I mean, to the extent, for example, nobody is surprised to discover the presence of Irish men in armies around the world, whether it's the British Army, the American Army, the Australian Army, whatever. Fine, no problem. The Swiss, after... The Swiss, all through sort of the Renaissance period up into the early modern period, the Swiss were the go-to mercenaries of Europe. They were the boys that you wanted to get in if you had a problem. And then we had the religious wars, the Eight Years' War. It was all pretty horrible. And the Swiss uh, had a pretty horrible experience of it. There's a fantastic film about this, which, oh, what the hell is it called? It's not, it's, it, it's I think it might be the same, something, the, the Hammer of God or something, is it? What's it? You know, the, I'm sure you've seen it, Gary. It's an awful film. It's about the, the end of the religious wars and ending up, this group ending up in a little valley, a hidden valley in Switzerland. And the Swiss, anyway, had a terrible experience of this whole period. And they made it illegal for the Swiss to be involved in any military outside of Switzerland. With one exception. For five marks, Gary, do you know what that exception is? Uh, Swiss Guard. 
Five points to Gary. The only non-Swiss military organization that Swiss men are allowed to join is the Swiss Guard, which mines the Vatican. So they take their neutrality very seriously indeed, and have done for a very long time. We have had a different kind of relationship with neutrality. I mean, famously in the Second World War, we were neutral in favor of the Allies. Our understanding of neutrality, at least in, in the last couple of years, has been that when we say neutral, we mean militarily neutral. And that is the limit of what we will do. Now, there are conceptions of neutrality that fit that. It's about as narrow as you can get in the idea, but it is It is possible. We saw this recently where we decided that, okay, the EU is sending uh, military goods to Ukraine, but because we're neutral, we're not going to send weapons. We're going to send other supplies, of which, you know, protective equipment, fuel. We're not going to send tanks, but we'll send diesel. We'll send diesel, and we'll send fuel and petrol to a country which is uh, seems to be producing rather a lot of Molotov cocktails. The end point of doing that is that Ireland has decided as a neutral country that we will materially contribute to the potential death of Russian soldiers. Now, we can say that that is the moral position, but it's not neutrality. It's nothing near neutrality. But it seems to be it seems to be roughly the Irish government's definition of neutrality. And I've noticed a great upsurge in people saying that we should drop neutrality, that it was always a farce, that it never worked, and it should be gotten rid of. And I, yeah, I think there is a debate there about where we should stand on neutral issues. And I said things like the triple lock, I think, should not be there. Although, I, th- I would suspect for different reasons than, let's say, the likes of Neil Richmond to think it shouldn't be there. A lot of the arguments that I see, I mean, I'm sure this is not an argument you're in the least bit interested in having, Gary, certainly me, but a lot of the arguments I see in favour of the abandonment of neutrality involves using phrases like growing up and being practical and sensible and being mature and for God's sake and it's ridiculous. None of these, anything that involves using the phrase being mature I, it just annoys me because what they really mean is you, you grow up and have the same opinion is me. I am a child, give me what I want. And and then we can all treat it as if that was the serious option. I have never seen the necessity, but particularly if you're talking about international relations and diplomacy. You have observed many times, Gary, that when people talk about international law, a lot of the time you're talking about some, a kind of a fiction, because most of the time international law doesn't exist. International law is something that at times we, we, we gather around a fictive notion, and we all agree that it's going to be the case, and then it becomes the case. But simply because there's a common agreement that it should, we should all share the pretense. That it's like, I, the notion that any kind of policy towards international relations or diplomacy should be rigorous and coherent and perfect and logical and rational in all of its facets doesn't make any sense to me at all. I think an author of the time it makes perfect sense to be able to say, yeah, I know that's right, but we're just going on the basis that we're not doing that, even though we are doing that. But we'll all agree that in principle, that's not what we really want to be doing, but we are doing, and it's okay. There are times when you just have to go ahead on the basis that the thing you're doing isn't actually really a thing at all. It's a bit of a sham. It's a bit of a pretense, but that's not what you're going to admit to, because that's just the way things work. That's that's the way things work in reality. Actually, I think you're largely right on that. My concern is that that is a position that needs to be understood by the people who are pushing it. And Michael, just in general, looking at our country's foreign policy and the people behind it, I don't have a great deal of faith in their understanding of what they're doing. There seems to be a lot of things that are done kind of as a knee-jerk reaction. I'll give you a good example of that, actually, and a recent one. Russian embassy gets its gate broken in by a truck. Yes. After being graffitied. The Russians complain, say that this is outrageous, they want an apology, they want us to pay for the gates to go in, and a note is made that Irish police were there at all of those occasions and did not stop these things from happening. The political response response from Irish politicians in general is to mock the Russians and to say that will never happen and then you have people like Neil Richmond particularly coming out and saying it will absolutely never happen and the real issue is the Russians invading Ukraine. Yeah, which it Fine. It's a, the bigger issue is the Russians invading Ukraine. But the Russian embassy is a piece of inviolable sovereign territory, which happens to be in Dublin. And we have a moral, but also a very strong, very well-established legal duty to protect it. And it is, I'm sorry, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that a, a Western country couldn't keep the fucking gates off a, a very large embassy. And get, it surely was not beyond the ken of somebody to think, do you know what, there might be a bit of a 
a bit of a problem down the Russian embassy. Maybe we should put a little bit more security than one on armed guard. And yeah, I, I think you're right. In that. I think it was is absolutely foreseeable that something would happen there, just based on how things were generally going. Let's say those politicians absolutely believe that the Russians can go screw themselves and they will get nothing from us, and it's their own fault. Article 22 of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. Uh, I think Section 2 of Article 22 says that the host country has a duty to take any and all steps required to protect the premises of any mission, such as an embassy, against intrusion or damage or disturbances of the peace, or I believe the phrase is impairment of the dignity of the mission. Yeah. That article protects every Irish embassy in the world, regardless of where it is, because no state will breach that requirement because it undermines their own people. And that is one of those things that is, by and large, in a world of lawlessness, generally speaking, I mean, one of the things that was so incredibly shocking about the revolution in Iran was the fact that they allowed the American embassy taken. That was that was such a shocking thing to happen. Protecting the Russian embassy isn't about protecting the Russian embassy and us saying, well, fuck the Russians because they've done bad things in the Ukraine because nobody doubts that. It's about the fact that we have embassies around the world that we expect will be protected and maintained. And unless everybody, once, if you start picking and choosing, well, then the, the, the principle is gone. You can't, the inviolability of the sovereign and the protect of the, of the, the, that sovereign piece of land, which is an, a, 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 a diplomatic mission, only works when everybody in the world accepts that this is the case and, and respects that. It's it's that if you talk about childish, Jesus, nothing more childish. They go, oh well, fuck you. So if, if we're going to say we're not going to accept this duty in in relation to Russian embassy here, Russians would be perfectly within their right to reciprocate. Absolutely, of course they would. And I have a feeling now this thing when someone like Neil Richmond comes out and basically mocks the Russians and says that the real issue is the war. And we can say absolutely, on a moral level, the war is the larger concern. But do you think that Neil Richmond considered, well, is the, is what I am saying going to create a problem in full knowledge of things like the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations? Or do you think he just fucking said it? Because he does not know what he's talking about. It's the, the point about of, 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 these kinds of extreme protection, these kinds of weird peculiarities exist. It's precisely because of situations like this. It is precisely be so that when we have countries that are at war and countries that have deep and bitter disagreements, that you can still maintain these principles of protection in order for diplomacy to be possible. It's basic self-interest. People who are curious why I keep picking on Neil Richmond is, one, Neil Richmond is kind enough to keep doing things like this, and two, because Neil Richmond is the Fine Gael spokesperson on European affairs. Now, because of that, that is a foreign relations role. And so he should, assuming he has any handle on his brief at all, be aware of these sorts of things. Whereas, you know, if some TD from Carlo Kilkenny says it. Maybe they don't know. And maybe it's it shouldn't be expected that they would know. He should absolutely know. I don't know where you'd have to be from not to know. I mean, really, if, come on, that's, this is fairly fucking basic stuff. I, I would imagine the average politician is aware that you... If you someone drives the truck through the gates of an embassy, it's a problem. And it doesn't become magically not a problem because those people have done awful things or are attached to a regime that has done awful things. Because if we accept that, well, someone is eventually going to burn down the Qatari embassy. Yeah, or any number of embassies that we could have perfectly reasonable re reasons for objecting to any number of social or legal policies that different countries might have towards any a vast number of different groups, whether for sexist reasons, misogynistic reasons, racist reasons, whatever. There might be reasons we might have to object to their policies at home, but we don't do that. Do you, um, have you seen that there's talk of having a citizens' assembly on whether or not we should remain neutral? I've had an idea, Gary. How about this? I'm just going to throw this at you. What do you think? Instead of having a citizens' assembly, right, what we do is we have an open, kind of an open draw where people can put their names forward, right? And then we have a vote and we pick a certain number of those people, say maybe 150, 160, 170 of them, right? And the people who get the most votes in this contest go to, we pick a we pick a, a site in Dublin where they can all meet, right? And then they, they organise, they come to decisions about things. And But we rather than having it on, on kind of an, an ad hoc basis, 
where we keep changing it every time there's a new subject up for discussion. We leave them in for a fixed period of time. And every time there's something that we need to decide in different policy areas, whether it's in economics or social policy or environmental policy, or whatever it is, they get together and they vote. And they kind of represent us like in a, a kind of a... Parliament. A parliament. Yeah, why not? Why, why don't we try doing that? I think, I think it's worked in other countries. I'm not saying it's a perfect system, Gary. No system is perfect. But I think, I think it's worth a try. Do you know my favourite fact about the Citizens' Assemblies are? Just my top favourite fact. And this, I think, is particularly interesting given that we seem to be putting an increased reliance on them mm-hmm. to decide what the government should do. Not a single one of the Citizens' Assemblies that have been put together since we started doing them, none of them that I, are, I am aware of, and I'm open to being corrected on this because... They're like Pokemon. You just have no idea how many of them there are these days. None of them have reached the threshold to be representative of the population. (laughs) None of them have had the required numbers. So if we think they're important and we think that they should be the, the group who debates these things and comes back with actual ideas that we should consider to be important... Why have we never bothered to make them representative? I, 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 there are many, many things I, I don't know and don't understand about the citizens. There was actually a bit of news that I, I didn't expect. Yeah. And yeah, certain things, you look at them and it's not that you disagree with them. You can just immediately tell that this is going to end badly. Like there's no good outcome to this. So Facebook comes out. Oh, yeah. And Facebook says a couple of things. One, it says it's going to change its um, standards on hate speech and hate towards a directed population in certain countries so that people can say things about Russian soldiers who are in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Not Russian citizens, they're quick to add, but Russian soldiers. So you can call for the death of Russian soldiers if you are in certain parts of the world now. Not just Ukraine, not just Russia, but actually pretty much that entire region. And that's one thing, Michael. That's that's one thing. But then they go one further and they say, now this, by the way, was not publicly said. This leaked to Reuters. <laughs> and then they say that in these regions, you can also call for the death, the death or the killing of Vladimir Putin and the Belarusian dictator Lushenko. Which is to say that Facebook has selectively said, in these regions, you can call for the death of particular political figures, and only those figures. And that, to me, Michael, seems like an astoundingly silly thing to do. Because that does not seem like a precedent you want to set, or a power you want to demonstrate to people that you're happy wielding. You know, would it not just be easier to say, we have a policy where we're against people looking for other people to be killed. And while we understand that might be frustrating for some of our users, it's an easier policy to enforce rather than for us as Facebook to decide who it is acceptable to assassinate and who it is not acceptable to assassinate. Because you know what, Gary, I think that's an area which opens you up to a debate you don't want to have to have. I wouldn't have thought. Facebook or really any other company would want to every time a war broke out or there was some sort of political instability have to consider were they okay with people calling for the death of one of the participants in it and if they were which one like for all of this we're not a um, publisher we're a platform yeah like saying you may call for the death of the following political leaders that seems like a publisher how about just let's play it let's let's play a let's imagine game for a moment imagine it wasn't Russia in invading the Ukraine because in Russia's opinion the Ukraine is an integral part historically of Russia and of the Russian nation and they were merely reintegrating Russia reintegrating Ukraine into Russia rather it was another country I thought you were about to say like a reverse merger and actually they were going to unify under Ukraine I was thinking of China and Taiwan Gary ah yes now can we can we imagine for a moment Facebook saying that it was okay for people on Facebook to advocate for the exam- the uh, assassination of Premier Xi. Hmm. I, I mean, Facebook is banned in China, but I have a feeling, Michael, the Chinese might take what some would describe as strong and direct <laughs> action. Measures. No, Gary, strong measures. <laughs> well, is that they, they've opened themselves up to that, and if you don't do that, well, why is this war special? Well, I tell you, actually, no. To be fair to, to Mr. Zuckerberg, whoever is running Facebook these days, there is a certain amount of courage. I don't know if it's they're aware of it, but um, critiques of the regime have met their end in the most bizarre ways. The immediate response of the Russians was they went to a court and asked the court to ban Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram and to classify them as extreme 
extremist organisations. Now, normally, trying to get rid of a social media platform or two on the basis that they're extremist organisations, quite difficult. Yeah. However, once it has been leaked that those organisations have selectively agreed that Russian politician can be, that, that his assassination can be called for, I think it would become dramatically easier to convince a court. Yeah, you can kind of see the point. Yeah, I mean, like, that's a fair one. <laughs> yeah, they have amended their policy and now have a list of politicians that they have agreed people can call for the death of. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have my own list, Gary. And I think it would be fun to make out that list, although I am fundamentally a man of peace. <laughs> Sorry, there's a line in the... <laughs> just abusing myself. There's a wonderful line in The Importance of Being Earnest, where uh, they remember that the Earnest's father, in the words of Lady Bracknell, it was the late general, was a soldier, though in that he was essentially a man of peace. Anyway, I am essentially a man of peace, but I would think it'd be fun to be able to make out a list of people that you could set up a social media and advocate for, well, not for their death, but for something unpleasant to happen to them. Maybe a, a really good pie in the face. I, I don't know. I, Mick, Mick, Mick Wallace coming out of the European Parliament and getting a really good custard pie. I think I'd appreciate that. I would very much like to know what the internal talk process was that led to this. Yeah, that, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Well, how did this conversation begin? Facebook have now commented on it, or meta, I suppose, as we should technically call them, and said it was necessary to allow people in Ukraine to complain and comment on the invasion. Meta, for Christ's sake. I mean, really? Meta. I mean, this is, we are now at the stage, the social platform formerly known as Prince. <laughs> Meta. No, I'm sorry. No, no, not meta. Yeah, but here, yeah, I say, where, how did this start? And, not, and what processes did it go through? I mean, should we allow them to come? Yeah, I think so. But should it only be them or for, or anybody? Oh, no, it shouldn't be anybody. Anybody would be too much. But, and also, the poor old guy from Belarus gets thrown in under the bus along with him. I'm sure most people's reaction was, who was that other guy? Who's he? What? Why? Why is he there? It just seems like a bad idea. It, it just does not seem like a road that if you go down, ends anywhere good. No. And it, it kind of reminds me of, I've been trying over the last kind of week or so to talk to some of the people I know in, in far-flung parts of the world, Michael. Yes. Mostly around India. Now, my contacts in India are not particularly good. They're mostly kind of low to medium level policy kind of people. But I was curious um, about what they thought about the sanctions on Russia. Mm. Not so much the, the, the breadth and the length of the sanctions, but how they felt about, effectively, the West as a collective whole just to you know that country let's just annihilate it mm. and some of the, they had different views on, on the um, the war and it's actually always quite interesting talking to the Indians about how they feel about any particular war because this is just it's a massive country and there's so many different political views but a lot of them were consistent in the fact that they were concerned about if this can happen in this case where else can this happen and now it's happened once isn't more likely to happen in the future and what would happen if there was ever any issue between India and the West yes would we see the same sort of things? And if we would, how do we prepare for that? So it has revealed to them, I think, a certain level of geopolitical insecurity that they were not previously aware of because they didn't think the West could do something like that. This, Which is fair because most people didn't think the West had it in it to still do something like this. I think there was a general consensus that the West had lost its political will to act in concert, that it had lost the capacity to act in uh, the kind of a way that would actually be sufficiently extreme and severe as to really impact on whoever it was they were going to go after, and would also impact on the economies of the West, at least in the short to medium term. It also, it's brought up two factors. One, the, the West is still capable of acting. And secondly, that the Americans are still still basically run the world's financial system. Now, whether or not this will spur the Chinese and the Indian and others on to try and first of all maybe to create parallel or alternative systems for finance and for banking whether or not it will have an effect on the way they look at the dollar as the, still is the world's reserve currency it's hard to see the Chinese then again who knows it's always been the position the Chinese were never or maybe the Indians too but certainly the Chinese were never going to undermine the dollar as a reserve currency because they have so many dollars that it would make absolutely no sense to them like, economically to undermine the dollar but you know what 
is perceived to be irrational within one one political paradigm may be not may not be irrational in a different paradigm. No, no. I mean, we've seen a lot of that over the past kind of couple of weeks. But just on the the India point, whether or not they they can build anything to insulate themselves from things like this, I think it's demonstrated to them. And I would imagine other countries all over the world, this sort of thing can happen. And if it can happen, then you need to have some way of dealing with it, or you need to at least consider it. And if I was involved with Facebook, my immediate concern would be, okay, we do this. And that deals with an immediate problem that we think we have, which is that ordinary Ukrainians cannot call for the death of Vladimir Putin or for the death of Russian soldiers. Yes. But once you do it, I mean, you'd have to think there are people, governments all over the world, even if they are opposed to Russia entirely, looking at this and going, oh, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Hmm, That's, uh, I'm not sure that's something we like you doing. Yeah, and this is going to provoke all sorts of different reactions in these countries. I mean, there was a really interesting article in one of the more serious foreign affairs journals uh, uh, about China, and in contrast to a lot of others' perspectives on it, the headline was uh, Warren McCain, G's worst nightmare, that uh, from the opinion of the author, the, the authors in this case, that they, this war has thrown up results that are very unpleasant for China, and consequently, and the Chinese are maybe going to have to reassess a lot of their long-term relations. And particularly, on the other hand, you got people saying, "Is it is it going to generate a situation where Russia is so enfeebled that it ultimately just ends up being a client state of China?" I, I saw that, Eric. I wasn't terribly convinced by it. Um, actually, just before we move on, I would just note this might be interesting for some of the listeners is that if you are interested in sort of uh, wider geopolitics just in general rather than particular regional interests um, I would recommend picking up a subscription to something like Stratfor I have found Stratfor I don't always agree with them but I think they are very worth keeping an eye on just to see what they bring up because sometimes you know it's good to know about something before it happens to a situation a bit closer to home Michael yeah cost of living cost of living was already bad before the war. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know the EBI did some research on it in January. Um, that was mentioned in a couple of the papers. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the bottom of this. People want to look at it. We were looking at how many people couldn't afford to heat their homes, basically, or use appliances. But it has gotten markedly worse since we published that piece of research in January. I've noticed now, Michael, there's a little bit of a tone of it is all due to the war. Yeah, yeah. Some of it is due to the war. A lot of it is due to government policies. I mean, we had Michal Martin coming out and saying it was morally repugnant of um, petrol stations to price gouge. Yes. During this period. And as Ben Scallon of Gripped very rightly pointed out, he said this at a point where the government takes over 50% of all that you spend on fuel. It was also observed as a response, not to Michal Martin, but who got in on this on the, the tail end, rather, but Paul Murphy, a dear friend of ours, who was giving out about price gouging by petrol uh, stations. And the representative of the petrol stations came back and said, OK, show me where. The wholesale price increase previous day had been of 22 cent and he said if you could if 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 the if the deputy can find me an example of anybody who has put up the price uh, of a litre by more than 20 I would be delighted find me that person so whether or not the price, the price gouging or not is it may have felt like there was but may not actually be the case at all price gouging is always an option but there is a little bit of a brass neck to well this is the fault of these people please don't mention the fact I am 50% of the cost absolutely I, and by god it's got to the stage <laughs> these days where unless I'm travelling around for the sake for to do something connected with the EBI I'm not going anywhere I I can't afford it. It is, I mean, when I see these comments, I think I mentioned to be honest, somebody was rather snidely saying, oh, my heart bleeds for the people driving their Range Rovers and filling up their SUVs that they're paying two euro for a, a, a litre. How fucking detached from reality are you? A while ago, it was costing me 65 euro-ish to fill up my car with diesel. The last time I did it was going to Dublin only to uh, actually to visit the Richard and I went up and down to doing some business with him at the BI and it cost 115 euro Derry 115 euro and he thinks that this is I am an SUV driver in Don, in, in Dalky well no I'm not I am representative of the poor bastards around the country who have to sometimes use a car to get to somewhere and there are tens and hundreds of thousands of us and we're not driving SUVs I mean god the, the, the sneering gall of some of these people the disconnect that they have but if I can short circuit my 
rage there for a minute. Did you hear just the dropped off passing comment of Pascal when he was talking about the price of things and everything going up and petrol going up and and the impact of energy prices, etc. We just well, you know, this is inevitable, Gary, because we're not a producer. We're not a producer, Gary. I have no idea where you're going to go with that, but it just I wanted to just make some point because I hadn't heard that comment from Pascal, and it's something I've noticed more and more over the last kind of year of this government. And Finnegan were bad enough about this on the last um, before they got in this time. Yeah. Have you noticed that when our politicians talk, there is always this resignation to whatever is the generally held default belief as to what can or should be done? Yeah, yeah. So Leo will say, oh, well, we've had cheap, we've had a long run of cheap food, as if to suggest that run is over. That's just what's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's just over. We can't cut uh, any of the taxes on petrol because that just wouldn't fly. No. And you just get this constant sort of, well, this is just the way it is. But more and more, it kind of feels like that you haven't really considered other ways that this might be. We, we're told that we can't cut the price of petrol because there's an uh, EU agreement on excise duty. So, you know, we have, we've, you know, there's a base base level. Now, I'm curious about this excise duty because, and it may even be true, Gary. I mean, there, actually, I know that there is. For example, the excise duty on alcohol in this country is vastly different to the excise duty on alcohol in other countries. That's as an observation. And I also know the price of uh, petrol is very different here than it is in other countries. So I'm, 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 a, little, I'm a little curious to the, to the extent. Other than the fact that I thought the taxation anyway was a competence for the domestic government. And I would have thought that you could perfectly reasonably say that this was a peculiar emergency situation. And there are cop-outs and loopholes available for situations like that. But yeah, it's like, oh, well, what can you do? If only we knew somebody in government or somebody in power, maybe they might be able to come up with something but frankly lads you know and actually for the point i mean i it's also i want to say some of these which is not very would when people start talking about the fact that one of the minute the minister the minister said well, he wants to get people growing flour or growing wheat carry right and everybody comes along and sneeringly says oh but oh it's so stupid all we're going to do is grow expensive fodder for cattle because we can't grow wheat to make flour in Ireland. Would you stop saying that, please? Of course we can grow wheat to make flour. We, we can't make, perhaps we can't grow wheat to make pasta because we can't grow durum here because we don't have the kind of climate for durum. And we probably, largely speaking, we don't have, have the climate that can produce wheat to make yeast. But we can make flour that you can make soda bread with. That's kind of the reason we have soda bread in this country because we can't grow wheat that you has the long proteins that you need to prove with yeast. And actually, you possibly even could if you had a longer proving set, but that's not the point. We have soda bread because we have soft flour from soft wheat. So if you want to make bread, you can make bread. You just make soda bread. But yes, you're about to anticipate, and I'm, and I, to, that I was about to say, and my, to observe something that Pascal had said that we're not a producer. And you said, you know, it's like government policy has nothing to do with anything. Yes, we're not a producer because we have passed a law saying we will not go looking for gas or for oil in this country. We have actually passed a law. We have, people have come over and found that there is gas in Leitrim that we could frack and would provide us gas for 30 or 40 years. But no, we're not going to take that out of the ground because we've passed a law to stop us doing it. We have the minister for the, the United States, I think I probably said this before, the United States right now has more natural gas than it knows what to do with because it's fracking. And because it's got natural gas, it has actually succeeded in reducing its emissions according to the aims of the Paris Climate Accord, even though nobody else did. And it came out of the Paris Agreement, but there you go. But we don't have storage facilities. Our capacity is to turn natural gas when you take it into 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 liquid liquefied form, and we have the minister for the minister for the environment actually lobbying against storage facilities for 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 natural liquefied natural gas. I mean, these people are they mad? Are they stupid? Are they are they evil? Or are they all of these things put together? I oh, we're not we're not a producer. No, no, we're not because it's policy not to be a producer. We want to be green, so our policy is to import all of our energy from places like Saudi Arabia and Iran and Russia until we've worked out how we can get all of our energy from the sun and the wind. And that is never going to happen. One other thing I thought was interesting is I have been reading various articles about the Polish, uh, that the Polish have been asking the EU to allow them to cut VAT on fuel and food 
since at least December of last year. Okay. I have yet to read a single article saying that we have made the same request. Ha! So maybe we have, and it hasn't been reported, Michael, That so we can't be too hard on that. But on the other hand, given the general trend of the government, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if they went, well, we can't do that because of EU regulations, and they never got around to going, should we ask the EU for even a temporary ability to reduce VAT from 23% on fuel? I wouldn't be terribly surprised if we just didn't do that. It'd be very embarrassing. Very embarrassing to have to ask that kind of thing. They, they might say no, and then what would we do? And yet the Polish were perfectly willing to have that conversation. Oh, they're more confrontational than us, the Poles. See, we punch above our weight, you know. Soft power. Oh, yes. Very soft power. Very, very soft. So soft that we don't produce briquettes anymore, but we can import them from Lithuania. Well, that's just green, Michael. With, a, with our peat moss, of course. Actually, I believe Carol Nolan there called during the week for us to resume uh, peat harvesting. Why does she hate the environment, Gary? Because she likes people. But the children. She's not thinking of the children. Oh, it's so sad when they don't think about the children. Actually, there is one thing, Michael, and I'd meant to mention it to you and I forgot to, if you want to just close on it very quickly. Public Health Scotland's report on minimum unit pricing and its impact. Yeah, yeah, go on, go on. So, the report is written in this incredibly positive, small impact size, not really, you know, any material difference. But then you look at the numbers, Michael. Mm -hmm. 14% of Scottish people have, since MUP came in, I think 2019, uh, have bought alcohol in England. Yeah. 3% of those have driven to England purely because they wanted to get cheaper alcohol. And they say, you know, that's not a big percentage. That's about 160,000 people. The thing there, Michael, is that's not 160,000 trips. That's a 160,000 people, you assume some of those are making multiple trips. But then they look at how off-licenses have been affected in Northern England, and they find that overall sales in Northern England have gone up about 1.1% more than you would expect, given the rest of England. And sales of, you know, cheaper alcohol, Michael, they've gone up about 4%. Four to six, depending on exactly what it is. And then they say, you know, this is again, is a small difference, although it's statistically significant. Yes. Here's the thing though, Michael. Their analysis compared all of Northern England, which has a population of about 15 million people. Yes. Scotland has a population of about 5.7, I think. Yeah. So what they didn't do is actually just look at the border towns. So if you have a region in which a population of third your size seems to be able to increase your total alcohol sales by 4% in certain categories, that would indicate that in the border regions... And remembering that the border regions are actually very lightly populated. So you would expect that there have been some rather substantial increases in alcohol purchasing in those regions. But the entire report is just in a sort of, oh, it's fine. There's no issue. But when you actually look at the numbers, you're talking about substantial amounts. I mean, if we saw the same thing in Ireland, we'd expect 150,000 people to go up the north. And Gary, that, remember, we should also look at an increase in the purchase of cheap alcohol in the context of a period where there has been a, a, a perennial decrease in alcohol consumption. Well, that's the interesting thing, because the, the major figure saying that MUP works is a reduction of about 3 5 in total alcohol uh, consumption in Scotland. Alcohol consumption was, was falling before MUP. If a smaller population can move the needle 4% in a population of 15 million. Yeah. I think if you narrowed that region down and actually just looked at the border regions, because I think they included cities like Manchester. Yes. You're not driving to Manchester from Scotland to buy cheap booze. You'll go to the border. Manchester, Leeds, uh, Hull, uh, Derby, uh, I think even Liverpool will be considered to be in the north of England. I think Liverpool was included. But I would suspect if you were, if they had broken that down and actually just looked at the border regions, you were looking at astronomical increases in some of those, uh, in sales of some of those alcohols. But they didn't do that. If you're looking, say, at Berwick and Tweed and places like that, uh, which are mu- really near the border, you're looking at much more significant increases. But also, Gary, remember that in Scotland, not as much as in Ireland, but in Scotland, you're already looking at con- persistent, historically recently, declines in consumption, which it, which prefigured any MU, anything, any MUPs. So there is, it's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a ridiculous, I mean, for, pe- for people who claim to be scientific about something, this is the most magical thinking form of fallacious thinking you can imagine, which is, Post hoc, propter hoc. 
Because something happens afterwards, it happened because of. There was also a very interesting thing about the study. They were unable to quantify online sales through England, but they did find out that over 30% of Scottish people buy alcohol online, and some amount of that is coming from England, so we expect the numbers to go up. Wow. But yeah, if, if you're looking at a 3.5% reduction in alcohol consumption in an area where it was historically decreasing at roughly that percentage anyway... Yeah. A 1.14% increase in Northern English alcohol sales would probably more than totally undo that. It could easily, could easily actually go beyond it. Now, we don't know. No, we, we don't know. But the, the entire report is in this wonderful sort of, isn't this working fantastically? Nonsense. And then you look at it and you go, actually, no, this this doesn't look good at all, lads. It'll be also curious to look at the intravenous, uh, well, not just not intravenous, drug use, general, generic drug use, how that's going to ha- how that's how that's doing but that's a a story for another day but exactly the same thing will happen when they do the reports here I mean this is the interesting thing it's interesting in Scotland because the Scottish English border actually presents something similar to the Irish Northern Irish border although obviously Scotland has differences in geography and things like that, which make it slightly more difficult uh, or unlikely that you would do so. But I mean, as I said, if we if we saw the same thing here, uh, Michael, you're talking about one hundred and fifty thousand. I think would be the um, would be the the relevant number here. One hundred and fifty thousand people going up the north to buy drinks, not one hundred and fifty thousand visits. In fact, I I I I confidently expect I uh, maybe completely wrong. I can't that it will actually be much more than that. Here for a number of reasons. First of all, the increases in costs here were 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 larger than they happened in Scotland. Secondly, the ease of access to uh, alcohol in the north of Ireland is much easier for large population centres in the south. You can be in. From Dublin to Newry is not much more than an hour. And then you've all the border counties right along from Donegal all, all the way down. Also, alcohol was already cheaper in the north anyway, and this is just going to make it a lot, lot cheaper. But on top of that, grocery bills, generally speaking, are quite significantly cheaper in the north than they are in the south. One thing, the one thing that might put people off is actually going to be the price of getting the car up there. But I would say, I remember... Not that long ago, you used to have people going up, get hiring buses and getting coach loads of people and they'd put in to hire a coach. I think that will happen. Actually, one of the one of the fun things about the report is they did some interviews with um, people who own off licenses on the English side of the border. Mm. Now, I they may be in an appendix in full, but I, I didn't see a full accounting of them in the report, but they mentioned them. It's in, they went to these guys and they told them they were there from Public Health Scotland and they were looking to see the impact of minimum unit pricing mm. on uh, alcohol consumption. And then they asked them, had they seen many people coming over in vans just to buy mass quantities of alcohol? And all of them just said no. Now, Michael, that might be a truthful statement, but I would also point out that if you are a retailer who is making substantially more money because of this, and the health authorities show up and tell you specifically what they're doing, you may be incentivized to be like, I don't even know what a van is. (laughs) I think that may well be true. (laughs) What is this van you speak of? Oh, I've just realized I sell alcohol. Really? Oh. My God. Scots, you say? They sound like a strange people. Oh, strange. No, we do. We do a lot. We do a lot of orangeade. Yes, and bur- burdock and burdock and lime. Very good. Very good. Accuse them of racism for suggesting that you could tell a Scottish man in a van, apart from an English man in a van. Lovely people. Anyway, I suppose we'll draw a veil over it today and uh, wish the people uh, a good week. And we shall be back next Sunday, barring an accident. All the best.